Joseph played me, and he made fun of my drinking of the water bottle. (laughs) My throat gets dry, man. But we are thankful uh, that you were there. We're also thankful that we're almost uh, been together for 10 years as a church. It's pretty incredible to be together for 10 years. And some of you are newer here. Um, but some of you guys have been here for years and years, and so you've been here for the whole time. And if you've ever been around uh, friends or family uh, for that long, you know that things can kind of get pretty regular. And there's some wonderful blessings that come with that. You know, you have real relationships. You don't have real relationships with somebody that you met three months ago but you can have real relationships with people that you've been together for years with. So there's something really sweet about that, but there's also some significant dangers that can come with being around the same people for 10 years if you're not careful. You know, when you're a new church plant, uh, each week feels new and exciting, um, but after a while, Sunday mornings can kind of just become routine or regular. And life gets busier, and we grow in responsibilities, and small group Bible studies can start becoming just, you know, routine, and maybe your studying of God, God's Word wanes, and your instructing your children kind of slows down. And if you're not careful, you can find yourself just kind of going through the motions, getting here on Sunday morning, kind of singing, but not really thinking about the words, not giving them much thought, saying hello to your friends, and moving on with your week. And... If you do that week after week, uh, things can get pretty stale if you're not careful. And in this week in youth group, we talked about uh, abiding in Christ from John 15. And how if you're going to make it in this Christian life, you have to be a Christian who abides with Christ. And we talked about what that looks like. Someone who is abiding in Christ is someone who actually really wants to be with him, who looks forward to coming the Sunday morning and singing with their brothers and sisters and hearing God's word. Someone who is meditating on the law of God day and night. So who is praying and trusting God. And I encourage the youth uh, to work on abiding in Christ this week by spending some time in God's word, especially if they had uh, kind of waned in their study of God's word. And I kind of said, hey, can you just take the next step? If you weren't reading your Bible at all, could you read it once this week? Or could you read it twice? Or... If you're just doing it a couple times, maybe you could do it three or four times if it wasn't regular. But can you take another step of faithfulness and pray to God and ask him to help you abide with him in real meaningful ways? And so my encouragement uh, as we head towards 10 years is if your relationship with the Lord kind of feels stale or mundane or just regular or church is just kind of, I just get here because I'm supposed to, then I would encourage you to take some steps of faithfulness this week as we head towards 10 years by asking God to help you abide with him and spending some good time in, the, in his word this, we, this week. You know, another one of the dangers that come with a new church plant is uh, doctrinal error. The church in Ephesus struggled with this, and they began strong, but very quickly wicked men came into the church and began teaching false doctrine. And so Paul uh, sends a letter to Timothy, Timothy, excuse me, uh, to, who's in, at the church, who's in Ephesus, and uh, he gives Timothy a mission while he's remaining there in Ephesus. So why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 
We're going to primarily be in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, but I'm going to start kind of at the very beginning, so you can just open to chapter 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, excuse me, remain at Ephesus. So he's talking to Timothy. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, we don't know exactly what these different doctrines are or what exactly these genealogies or myths were, but Paul is clearly not happy about it. And so he's making sure that Timothy remains in Ephesus to charge certain persons to not teach false doctrine or to give themselves to myths or endless genealogies. Now, I want you to think about that. How do you think those conversations went? Do you think there was any conflict there when Timothy showed up and charges people and commands people that they are not allowed to teach different doctrine? Do you think that those people teaching such doctrines or giving themselves to myths or genealogies uh, just said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry, I didn't know, I shouldn't have been doing that, you're right, I'll stop. I'll stop right away and you, know, you, just, you teach me whatever you want me to teach, I'll teach you. Is that how most of the conversations went? We don't really know, but maybe some. But that's not the norm in scriptures, for sure. And that's not the norm today, either. Try to go to a church in our town that teaches false doctrine and charge them to not teach that doctrine and see how well you're received. They would laugh you out of the room, right? How many pastors do you think would listen to you if you went to a church... I was teaching false doctrine, and you charged them not to teach such things. It's why Paul says in verse 18 that he's charging Timothy to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Wage the good warfare, he commands of Timothy. War, we know, is bloody, it's painful, it's not pretty. Now, that doesn't mean Timothy can go around And he can do whatever he wants, he can be a bully, he can have no self-control and no love. We know that it's not true because Paul says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So this waging of warfare that he charges them to do is to be done in love with a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. But that does not mean that it's quiet or that it's only, it's really soft and it's super sweet and it doesn't ruffle anybody's feathers making sure that you don't upset the rich people in the church because how are we going to pay the bills if they get mad? That's not at all what Paul's talking about. Paul actually goes on at the end of the chapter, and he says in verse 19 that some have rejected holding pure doctrine, and they made a shipwreck of their faith, and he even names two of them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he says he's handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What a thing to say to a church. How many pastors are doing that in our country? Some discipline, for sure, but very few have the guts to confront false teachers in their church. They'd rather keep the peace with the 
with the whole flock and, and not make anybody mad, so I'm not going to you know, talk to that person about this doctrine that I hear that they're teaching because that might upset you know, this small group or this Bible study, so I'm just going to be quiet. And they let the wicked, wicked doctrine run amok in their church, and it devours and it destroys their people. And this is very normal for churches. You have to understand that. It doesn't happen in all churches, but it's much more common than you probably think it is. And you should know that so you're not caught off guard by it. How many churches in this town were started by godly men and women with good, solid teaching for many years, but over the years they've seen the doctrine grow in air, unchallenged, and now their churches are waving gay pride flags outside their churches. It's not an uncommon thing that's happened in our town. The church I attended here in college that most of the Campus Crusade staff people went to, uh, there was a Herald Times article about them in the paper. And there were some red flags now looking back, but I wasn't mature enough in my faith at the time to even understand them or have that kind of discernment. But I went there because that's where all the trusted crew staff went. So sure, it had to be a good church. Well, the point of the article was talking about their name change. But in the article, when talking about the church, it says this. Because of the pastor's initiatives, this is the same pastor who was there, he's still there. He was there 10 years ago when I was there, 12 years ago when I was there. Because of his initiatives, the congregation has moved toward an emphasis on creation care and environmental concerns encouraging others in the more conservative stream to do so. He has also moved into interfaith circles, including friendship with the current rabbi in town, as well as with Muslim neighbors. Rachel Justice concerns move this church currently toward a more progressive stance. There are, there are diverse opinions on such things as homosexuality and abortion. Areas that continue to divide other congregations and denominations and recently, women have been added to the congregation's board of elders. Now, admittedly, some of that is more terrible than others. But that is terrible. The only way that a church has diverse opinions on such things like homosexuality and abortion is because the pastors and the elders have given up on shepherding the flock of God. That's the only way it happens. The only way it happens is the pastor himself is teaching that or he lets other people go around teaching different doctrines, whatever they think is good, and they never discipline, never correct them, and then you see the fruit of it 15 years later. It happens today in our town. It's happening back when Paul is writing to Timothy. It was happening in Ephesus. And so he tells Timothy to wage the good warfare and charge people not to teach any different doctrine. Now, like I said, I don't know exactly what the doctrinal error that was going on in Ephesus, but it's not hard to glean what some of them were. So let's go to chapter 2. Look at Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we'll spend the rest of our time, starting in verse 1. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For, all, for the kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peace, that we may lead a peaceful 
and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul tells Timothy, first, you're going to gather people to pray. I want you to do this. And verse 1 goes through different types of prayers. It says prayers of supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving to God for all people. And then in verse 4, it says that God desires all people to be saved. God desires for all and everyone to be saved. And I'll talk about more of that in a minute. But all here, when he says that in, in verse 1 and in verse 4, when, when Paul is saying all people, he's, re- he's referencing all types of people, all classes of people. Remember, before Christ, the Jews alone were God's chosen people. Their circumcision was a sign of the covenant, and they alone were God's people. But after Christ, now all the Gentiles, everyone who isn't a Jew, has the ability to be grafted in to the people of God without having to become a Jew. So it wouldn't be out of line to think that some of the people here were teaching that only certain people could be saved. And so Paul makes it clear, no, you need to pray evangelically that all people all types of people would come to know God and be saved, not just the Jews, not just those who who hold certain rituals, specific eating things that they might do. You don't drink this, you do drink this, you do eat this, all peoples. And that's good news for you and me because this truth means that it is God's desire for you and for me to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. And you say, but you don't know what I did last night, Joel. Well, I know that God wants all people to be saved. And you might say, I've shipwrecked my life. I've hurt so many people. But God desires all people to be saved. Well, I'm unfaithful, and I keep falling, and I, and I kind of take one step forward, but then I take two steps back. So I don't, what about me? All people is, what God, is who God wants to be saved. God wants you, he wants to help you turn from your selfishness, your pride, your lust, your foolishness, your lying ways, and come to him and be saved. No matter what excuse that you could make and try to muster up to God that why God doesn't want you, it wouldn't matter because his word says that he desires for all people to be saved. Then Paul moves to kind of a doctrinal statement in verse 5 when he says, For there is one God, and there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth that I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, then, that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Again, I don't know for sure what the different doctrines are being taught, but Paul thought it was important enough to remind Timothy and those in the church of Ephesus that there is one God. Was it because they were teaching that there were more than one God? Possibly. 
But I think it's more likely that he's continuing his point that there are all types of people that God wants to be saved. And there is one God for all of them. Similar to how Paul makes the point in Romans 3 when he says, Or is there a God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. There is one God. There isn't one God for the Jews, there isn't one, and then one God for the Gentiles, and one God for this type of world, and one God for the Muslims, and one God for the Buddhist. Now that doctrine may seem pretty obvious to many of you who have been in the church for a while. But the Bible is constantly reminding us that God is one. It says it all the time. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Mark 12.29, Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The scribe in Mark 12.32 admits this to Jesus. He says, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. Paul says in Romans multiple times, since indeed, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Is, excuse me. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And that's a very similar point to the point he's making here in 1 Timothy. I could go on and show you many more places in Scripture. But the fact that is, the Bible tells us that there is only one true God and that is not to be disputed. And it may be disputed by the world, but it is not disputed in Scripture. If you've grown up in the church or you've been here for a long time, you don't spend a lot of time with other non-Christians, you might not realize how controversial that statement is to the world. The world is convinced that there are many gods. Everybody can worship whatever god they want. That's what everybody says. You try to tell somebody that there's only one god and they have to worship him in a certain way that he has prescribed and see how that goes for you. The world hates that truth. But as Christians, we must insist and say, no, there is one God. We tell the world, I'm sorry, that is not true. There is only one God, and every other God is a liar. The world thinks this is a preposterous claim, and if you go into the world and tell people that there's one God, you will be charged as arrogant, as self-righteous. You will be mocked and scorned and ridiculed. Why? Because they hate the one true God. They want to be able to pick whatever God they want for themselves and that fits them and serves them. And if you tell them that their God is false, you will make them mad and upset, and they will try to punish you for it. But is that why we declare that God is one? because we just want to upset people? No, of course it's not. We declare it because it's true, and we long for men to come to saving faith in the one true God. There is one God, and he desires all men to be saved, and if men are worshiping different gods who are no God, then how will they come to the knowledge of him and truly be saved? Now, some men will say, well, you say that God is sovereign and you're reformed, and so how can you say that God desires all men to be saved? They think it's a preposterous thing 
for us to say that, but it's not that difficult to understand when you think about it in simpler terms. When you think about the question, does God desire that all men not sin? The answer is obviously yes. Does God desire that all men act holy and righteously? Yes, he does. But men choose to sin and not be holy and instead choose to act wickedly. And men choose to not be saved. But maybe God has sovereignly placed you in this church service today so that you will come to the knowledge of him and be saved. There is only one God, and he is the God who created you, and he desires for you to be saved. There's one God that can save man, and even though the world would say there's many, the world doesn't know what it speaks of. And Paul continues with this idea of only one way when he says in verse 5, there's one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I just said over and over, there is one God, but there is also only one mediator between God and men. The Bible claims that that mediator is the man Christ Jesus. Now remember, before Christ, like I said, Israel was God's chosen people. The other nations did not have access to God. But now, Paul is continually harping on the fact that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Now all men can come to God through Christ. He is their mediator. He is our mediator. Now what exactly is a mediator? Well, a mediator is someone who acts as an intermediary uh, to work with opposing sides in order to bring about a settlement. The need for a mediator assumes that there's a conflict between the two parties. There's a dispute, there's a disagreement, and a mediator is going to go between them to try to reconcile. Remember, God has a dispute with your sin. He is holy. Nothing unholy can be in his presence. God hates our sin, and, he stand, and our sin stands between us and him. There has been a separation between us and God because of our sin. Remember, the penalty for our sin, Scripture says, says the wages of sin is death. And since you and I have sinned, the wage that we have earned, just like earning a wage at your job, is that we deserve death. And not just a physical death, but a spiritual death where we are eternally separate and punished by God. We have rejected him. We have chosen our sin over him. And so therefore we should be sent away and punished for our sin justly. And there's nothing that you or I could do on our own accord that would be sufficient to mediate between ourselves and God. Some people feel the weight of their sin and they're convicted by their sin. And so they decide that they will work hard to please God for the rest of their life in hopes to appease God and the guilt that they feel. And that will help them reconcile them to God, and they'll, they'll be good with God again. You know, I, I, didn't, I did more good things than my neighbor. I, I was more good than bad. But that rule won't work because 
you'll never be good enough, you'll never be a good enough rule keeper in the first place. And two, you've already sinned and are, are worthy of the judgment for you. Saying you're going to start keeping the law or you're going to be a better person or you're going to try hard after you've already transgressed the law is like a mass murderer trying to tell the judge, I know I've killed hundreds of people, uh, but I'm going to start doing some community service on Saturday morning, so will you please let me go free? No, the man is already guilty, and he will pay for his crimes, and you are already guilty, and will pay for your sins if you die in your sins. But the main crescendo of Scripture is that you don't have to die in your sins. There is a God. He is one, and there is a mediator for you between that God and his name is Christ Jesus. Don't let this verse go by in your reading of Scripture, when you read this in Scripture, without stopping to be amazed that there is actually a mediator between you and God and Christ Jesus. There is actually a way for you to be made right with God. Remember, a mediator is an intermediary that works with opposing sides. So because of our sin, God opposes us, but Christ is our mediator. He is the one who can actually bring those two sides together and reconcile them together. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore he, being Jesus, therefore he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, how is Christ our mediator? And why does the Bible speak of a death that has occurred? Why is it necessary? What's the point of it? Well, remember, before, before Christ, the Jews were told by the law what sacrifices were needed to be made for their sins. So you did this, you need to sacrifice this. God has always required blood to be shed for the remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of your sins. So they would sacrifice certain pure animals for certain things done on certain occasions, But those were all shadows of the greater thing to come, which is Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus became the final sacrifice for us to atone for our sins. And Hebrews 9 9 goes on to explain this. It says in verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies, the shadows of these things, of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into... into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not blood, not his own. So every year the priest enters the holy place to make sacrifices for the people. Jesus doesn't have to keep doing that. He did it once and for all. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So the priest used to enter year after year after year. You had to make the sacrifice and sacrifice, but Scripture says that Jesus Christ was a once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. He bore our sins once and for all. And because he has been our sacrifice and has bore our sins, we are made right with God. This is how Christ is our mediator. He has brought two opposing parties together, and Hebrews goes on in chapter 10 and says that because of this reality, therefore, in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter holy places by the blood of Jesus... We don't have confidence to enter holy places by our good works. We don't have confidence to enter the holy place by any other thing. We only have confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So we don't need a priest anymore to make sacrifices for us. We don't need to pray to the saints. The Catholics have this wrong in this way. We don't need the priest to be our intermediary. We have Christ. You have been washed clean. Your evil, dirty heart has been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus Christ if you have faith in him. You used to be excluded from the holy places. But now Scripture makes it clear that you can enter into the holy places because of Jesus. But what is it about Jesus' sacrifice that makes his sacrifice good enough for us? Why couldn't somebody else sacrifice themselves? Why couldn't Moses sacrifice himself, or a prophet sacrifice, or John the Baptist? He was a great man. Why couldn't he sacrifice himself? Well, the answer is because Jesus is unlike any man in history. Many of you remember Bob. He was a sweet saint, a wonderful man, Barbie's late husband. And he loved to talk about the hypostatic union of Christ. And that's a theological term for the concept that Scripture teaches that Christ was both fully man and fully God. He loved talking about this. His nature was 100% God, 100% man. There has been no man like him. He was born of a virgin, the Bible tells us. He was certainly man. Paul makes that clear. Even in this verse, he says, the man Christ Jesus. He was a man just like you and me, but he was also God, Emmanuel, the Bible speaks of him, God with us. So why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus was fully God and was fully man? Do you have an answer for that? Why does it matter that Jesus was fully God and fully man? Let's start with why it matters that Jesus was man. Well, one, it matters because the prophecies in Scripture claim that there will be one born of a virgin. And so if Jesus was not a man, he was not born of a virgin, he wouldn't fulfill the Scriptures. Also, the Scriptures speak of him being from the line of David. So if he just came from heaven, just randomly plopped up there, he wouldn't be coming from the line of David. So we couldn't trust the Scriptures 
because they wouldn't be true, the prophecies wouldn't be fulfilled. And that was one way that God authenticated the scriptures to us was through the prophecies being fulfilled. But beyond that, fulfilling the prophecies in scripture, Galatians speaks of Jesus being born under the law, just like the rest of man. But there's a fundamental difference between Jesus being born under the law and you or me being born under the law. And that is that Jesus actually kept the whole law. He was tempted yet without sin. You've been tempted many times, even this week, and you've given in to temptation. Daily, you find yourself falling into sin. Jesus lived his whole life here on earth, and not once did he give himself over to sin. He lived as Adam was intended to live in the garden. And 1 Corinthians says, For as by a man came death, Adam, for as by a man came death, Adam sinned, sin entered the world. For as by a man came death, by a man has come, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just as sin came in the world because of Adam's decision to sin, and we have all reaped the consequences of that sin, now by one man, Christ, we shall all reap the consequences of his obedience and his sacrifice. If Jesus was not man, he could not die for mankind. He had to become like us, but to keep the law perfectly so that he would be holy and righteous and be a pure sacrifice. In the Old Testament, you needed a, a pure sacrifice, a pure lamb to be offered to God. And Jesus was our pure sacrifice. He was not tainted with sin, and he sacrificed himself for us. Hebrews twelve seventeen says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became our priest in a way that no other man could be our priest. Okay, so he has to be man, but why does it matter that he was God? Couldn't a man theoretically just uh, live a perfect life and take the place of Jesus instead? Did he really have to be God? And we know that that, would never, that has never happened and it will never happen. The answer is yes, he had to be God. The Heidelberg Catechism says in their 17th question, why must he also be true God? The answer, so that he, by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Because he is divine, he was able to fully satisfy God's wrath against our sin. God's wrath is infinite in quality. And so there, therefore, there needed to be a sacrifice with the same quality in order to satisfy the wrath of God. The value of the sacrifice had to be so great in order for God to be satisfied with it. And what value could be greater than God himself? Only Christ, as God, could bring a sacrifice of infinite and eternal value to God that he would actually propitiate heaven's wrath. It is because of his divine nature that he is able to earn for us eternal life and favor with God. It is because he is God that he is able to be our mediator. It is because of his divinity that he is able to be raised from the dead after conquering death and then take those benefits 
and apply them to us. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and it had to be that way so that he could be the one true mediator between us and God. I know many of you are Christians, but some of you are younger, some of you are newer around here, and maybe you haven't placed your faith in God. And I would remind you that it is no accident that a sovereign God has placed you in the family that he's placed you in, that he's made things line up so that you're here this morning. And this is God's call to you, maybe, to come to the knowledge of him and be saved through the mediator, Christ Jesus. There isn't some magic ritual that you perform to become a Christian. You simply place your faith in Christ, meaning you trust that Christ died for you, paying the penalty and the wages that you deserve for your sin, and he satisfied God's wrath for your sin. God desires all men to be saved, and you are included in all men, so come to Christ this morning. And for many of us who are Christians, I hope you'll spend time this week abiding in Christ and remembering and being thankful that God has made a way for your sin to be dealt with. He has made a way for you to be clean. He has given you Christ as your mediator. Just spend a moment this week thinking about the sins that you have committed. All of what you should have to pay for when you stand before the judgment seat. Just If you spend 30 seconds, one minute, just meditating on your sin and what judgment you would deserve, it will quickly, it will quicken your heart to be thankful for the mediator Christ. You know, I gave the example of the murderer saying to the judge that he's going to do community service and how absurd that would seem. But don't forget that the sentence that you're deserving of for your sins do not compare to what any earthly judge could dish out. The punishment that you would receive for your sins could not compare to any punishment that any man could give to any other man in this, in this life. But God has made a way for you to be saved from that punishment. He's given you the mediator, Christ Jesus. It should cause you to be thankful. I hope you'll spend some time meditating on that and being thankful for Christ, your mediator. And it should cause you to do what the main content, context of this passage is, which is to pray evangelically for all men, excuse me, evangelistically, to pray for all men to be saved. I spent a good, good time just talking about verses 5 and 6 and what it means to have a mediator. But don't forget that the context of these verses is Paul telling us these truths so that we can pray for men to be saved. You have friends, and you have family, and you have co-workers. You have neighbors who have not come to the knowledge of God. And God desires them to come, and he has placed you in their lives for you to call them. So will you at least, will you at least pray for them this week? Will you pray for all men to be saved? Let's pray together right now for them. Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for the mediator Christ Jesus. We thank you that we get to enter into these holy places to talk to you, to speak to you. And we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to make a sacrifice on an altar this morning. Because you have been sacrificed once for all. And you have allowed us access to the Father. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you for making this possible. Thank you that though our sins are many and our flesh is still weak and we fall daily, weekly, hourly, that we don't have to make more sacrifices for those sins. You've paid for those as well and for all the ones that we'll commit in the days ahead. But God, please make us holy. Make us like Christ, Father. Sanctify us. Help us sin less and be more like Christ and live righteous and holy and upright lives. Thank you for how you've brought us and sanctified us for almost 10 years now here together as a church. We pray that you would protect us from doctrinal error. God, please do not allow allow our pride to think that we are so holy and awesome that we would never give ourselves over to doctrinal error and just to mock and scorn the other churches in town that have done so. Help us be humble and know that Satan is prowling and he is looking for churches to devour and teach false doctrine to. Would you protect us? Would you give us godly men to lead and protect us? Father, we have people in our lives who do not know you and will take the punishment for their sins. They would not trust you. And we pray that you would be gracious and merciful and that you would save them. You would cause their hearts to turn to you. Would you use us in ways where we be bold as we ought to be? Would we not be ashamed of your words? Father, use us in any ways that you seem fit or that would please you to help others know you. Father, we desire all men to be saved, and this passage says for kings in high places, and we think of President Biden. And we ask that you would help him be saved. We ask that our senators and our House representatives and those in the Supreme Court, those leading us, Father, do you have place and authority that they would be saved? We ask these things in Jesus' name.